and at the same time very sad. And this story comes from the head of the Queen's security detail. He, he tells the story about uh, one time when the Queen was in her 80s, and he and the Queen were out picnicking in the countryside near her, her Scottish residence. And two American hikers came along, and they stopped for a chat, and they asked this old lady if she lived nearby. And she said, well, I, I live in London, but I have a place up here too. I've been visiting for about 70 years. And the hikers said, oh, well, we're staying near uh, Balmoral Castle. The Queen sometimes stays there. So they asked her, naturally, if either of these two people had ever met the Queen. And the Queen thought for a minute and, and said, well, no, actually, I, I've never met her. But my friend here, he's met her several times, you know. And these guys are super impressed. They're like, wow, and, and what's the Queen like? And he said, well, she could be a bit gruff, but she's mostly nice, you know. So the American hikers are super excited. They took photographs with the man who'd met the queen. And, uh, and finally, you know, just so she didn't feel bad, one little picture of this old lady who was with her, and, and then they went on their way. And, and the queen turned to her employee and said, imagine what their friends will say when they show them the photos. Can you imagine? It's a funny story, and it's also a bit sad. Imagine being so close to majesty and missing it entirely. You'd feel like such a fool. Here you are gushing and ooing and aahing over some guy who said he'd met the queen, but you don't appreciate the fact that you're standing in the presence of royalty. Well, I think for us, we run that same risk. We, uh, uh, we run the risk every time we open up our Bibles, right? There's, there's stories in here, like the story we're going to read this morning, that are simply amazing. And we run the risk, if we're not careful, of just missing the majesty. And all too often, we do miss the majesty. We miss God's presence in our everyday lives. I mean, how many times have we gone through life with no sense of the supernatural, no sense of God's majesty in our midst? We do it all the time. We get caught up in our distractions or our minor problems, and we miss God's presence all around us. And I think that is terribly sad. It's sad because missing out on that majesty all around us, we miss on so many chances to, to follow God, to see Him at work, to do big things with Him and, and for Him. We miss out on, on following God in obedience because we want to have all the information. We want to have all the answers. We want to have everything laid out for us. We get caught up in, in wanting to understand everything. We just miss the majesty of what God wants to do. In our, our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus and we're going to see John the Baptist following God, even though it doesn't really make very much sense. We're going to see them taking steps of obedience, following God with the, the information, with the light that they've been given. And we're going to see them rewarded with an amazing picture of God's majesty on display. And for us, my desire is really that we would see the majesty in this moment and we'd be drawn to deeper and fuller worship. So let's dive in. Our passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. The passage begins with this dialogue between Jesus and John the Baptist. Look at uh, Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. 
and again, let's not miss the, the amazing, majestic thing that happens here. Let's not overlook it ahead of ourselves. In fact, let's just, let's just put ourselves in this story for a moment. Imagine being a person standing in line behind Jesus, right? I mean, nobody yet knows who Jesus is. He's just some unassuming guy. Just imagine standing in line behind him. You strike up a conversation. Hey, where are you from? Well, uh, I've been around a lot, but let's just say I'm from Galilee. <laughs> you know, like, oh, what do you do? Um, let's just say I'm a carpenter. Like, nobody has any idea what's about to happen here. Everybody's here for the same kind of reason. They're looking for hope, preparing themselves for the Messiah, and nobody has any idea that here he is, but he's just like them, just standing in line like the rest of them. Nobody has any idea except John. So John knows because Jesus is not just like the rest of them. And here Jesus gets to the front of the line, and John recognizes him. Now, I don't think he recognizes him like, oh, it's my cousin, the Messiah. But I think what's happening here is, you know, you may remember from the Christmas story when, when John was still in utero, before he was even born, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't think it's so much that John is, is recognizing his, his cousin from Galilee. I think what's happening is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to John to say, this is the one. And John, he's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He's paying attention, and the Spirit guided John to recognize that this person standing here before him was, in fact, the Messiah, Jesus. And that's why John tries to talk him out of being baptized. I mean, the passage says John would have prevented him. In other words, he, he tries to stop him. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and, and what are you coming to me for, right? In the passage just before this, John had been teaching the, the crowd. He, he told them, uh, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me, he's mightier than I. His sandals, I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's, that's verse 11. John, he's humble. He understands the Messiah would be superior to him in every way. And yet here's Jesus, just a, a regular seeming person coming to be baptized. So John tries to stop Jesus. He says, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me? But Jesus, he doesn't disagree, right? But he also knows this is a necessary step in the process. Jesus understands he needs to go through with this. And so the passage tells us, verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so then he, John, uh, consented. So, so Jesus is baptized by John. We're going to get to that amazing part in a bit. But, but first, let's understand what this, this kind of confusing statement by Jesus. He doesn't disagree with John, but he says, hey, that part, that's going to come later. For now, this is what needs to happen. And he says, being baptized by John is, is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? When Jesus is talking about righteousness, what he's really talking about is, is doing what's necessary to obey God. In fact, this, this passage, Jesus' statement, is sometimes translated as, uh, this is fitting to do what's required. He's really talking about obedience. That's what he's talking about, obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. Now, there's no command, no expectation that the Messiah would need to be baptized. That's not the act of obedience. But Jesus knows that submitting himself to God is an act of righteousness, an act of obedience. So Jesus tells John, we need to do this to demonstrate obedience. And there's actually three layers to the obedience here. There's a lot of obedience right here. Uh, first, the, the first act of obedience is from Jesus to the Father. 
That's one act of obedience we see here. We're going to talk about that relationship between the Father and the Son in a bit, but, but part of that relationship means that Jesus does what the Father wants. He acts in obedience. And in fact, it, it, it's an amazing thing to think about. This is amazing. There's some moment way back in time, before time, before creation, some moment we can only imagine when the three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're, they're talking and they had to make a decision. They had to decide which member of the Trinity was going to be the one. Which member of the Trinity is going to be the one who would, who would come to earth, who would live as a person, who would die on the cross and pay the punishment for sin. And again, we can just only imagine this, but it would seem at some point in the distant past, God the Son said, I'll do it. Out of a love for you, the other members of the Trinity, out of love for you, I'll go. I'll obey this desire to save the world and bring glory to ourselves. That's, that's one of the acts of obedience. So just don't miss the, the amazing majesty in this passage. So here's Jesus, just waiting in line like any normal person, but he insists that he goes through this, this, this baptism because he's committed to be obedient to the Father. This is the moment. He says, let it be so now. This experience has been planned since the beginning of time. So that's one act of obedience. And then we need to see also that John is obedient to Jesus. That's the second act of obedience. Jesus tells him, let it be so now, for it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consents. And he, he's obedient, even though it doesn't make any sense to him. He's got this role to play in this. And again, John was chosen before birth for this role. God knew that John would be the one to fulfill this prophecy, to, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And so this act of obedience is part of that. But there's one other act of obedience we don't want to miss here. John is obedient to the Father. He's obedient to God, not just because he's fulfilling his calling in a general way to be this voice of one calling out in the wilderness. That's obedience as well. But, but specifically, John's obedient to the Father in choosing to baptize Jesus. Because if you look at the story of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, you can see this, this third layer of obedience. John is, is talking about the events of this passage, the baptism of Jesus, and he tells the crowd this in John 1. He says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So God had told John that he would see the Messiah. He would know which person was the right person when he saw this miraculous event, the Holy Spirit coming. So John's obedient to God. He's looking out for Jesus. He's willing to baptize him even when it doesn't make any sense. He's willing to, to, to live in the majesty and to live out obedience. And as a result, God used him in an amazing way. And God wants the same thing for you and me, following him, living for him, even when it doesn't make any sense. And the result of this obedience is important. It's important because Jesus, this, this seemingly normal person, gets down into the water. And in doing that, he identifies himself with sinners, with people just like you and me. Jesus himself, he had no sin of his own to repent of, yet his willingness to be baptized identifies himself with sinners. His act of obedience prepares the way for each of us to be able to follow him, to follow his example of obeying God, even if it doesn't make any sense. 
And because Jesus identifies himself with sinners like you and me, that makes what happens next that much more amazing. Jesus is willing to obey God, to humble himself in this way, and as a result, we get this this peek into the majesty of God. So Jesus identifies himself with sinners, and then he identifies himself, if if you get what I mean. What happens as he's baptized reveals this amazing truth about this normal-looking guy. I don't want us to miss the majesty in this moment. So after all this obedience, then we see Jesus being baptized by John. Such a, a simple description, but such an amazing event. Let's read the next couple of verses, starting in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So this miraculous moment, it's worth us camping out on for a while. One of the amazing things about this passage is it gives us a very clear picture of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are all present here. They're all distinct from each other. And so as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew in this sermon series, this passage gives a great opportunity for some learning. There's a couple of critical doctrines that that come to the surface here. No pun intended. Okay, pun intended. But but the first key doctrine is is simply the nature of the Trinity, right? How is it that God is three in one? How does that work? We're going to talk about that. And the second one is just as important. It's, It's about the nature of Jesus himself. How could Jesus be both God and man. We're going to spend time understanding both of those things today. So two, two big things to learn from this baptism of Jesus, two big topics that have been the source of much challenge and much disagreement over the centuries. I mean, people have died to defend the truths that we're going to discuss, and I think it's really critical that we come to understand both of these things. But, but before we get to those key doctrines, there's one other pretty important thing that this passage, this baptism of Jesus has to teach us. It's a, it's a bit of a side trail, so I'm going to keep it brief, but this This passage is amazing, it's supernatural, and as a result, it comes with some controversy. We read just a moment ago in Matthew, God speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, if you look in Mark or Luke, you'll see that God says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So there's a subtle difference there. And and critics of the Bible, they love to, to point to this passage and say, oh, you can't trust the Bible. It's full of contradictions, right? So it's worth us talking about, taking this little side trail for a moment, because there is a way to resolve this, this seeming contradiction. And, and the way the scholars talk about it is they use these, these Latin words, these Latin phrases, uh, ipsissima verba and ipsissima vox. You should see them on the screen, hopefully. Uh, and, and these phrases mean uh, the very words or the very voice, okay? And so, uh, critics of the Bible would say, well, these are not the very words of God. You can't trust this. He either said it this way or he said it that way, and it seems like a contradiction, right? But the fact is, the authors of, the, of Scripture, they're really more concerned with the very voice of God, the ipsissima vox. They're creating an accurate rendition of God's speech, of his voice. And, and in reality, we do this kind of thing all the time. That's no problem. Like if you're watching the news and they say, uh, today the Biden administration announced blah, 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 right? Well, they give you an accurate transmission of what was announced, but without the very words, right? Or if you say to your sibling, oh, 
Dad said, you better not do that. Well, these are not the exact words of Dad, but they carry the full weight and the full authority of Dad's words, right? They're the voice of Dad. So we do this kind of thing all the time, and it's really not controversial. And when you consider as an additional layer that the audience of this moment in history was likely speaking in Aramaic, that was the dominant language in Israel at this time, but the Gospels were originally written in Greek, well, already, you know, you've got this layer of translation, so it's even less troubling. So Mark and Luke, as they write about this moment, they might record the, the very words of God, translated into Greek, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. But Matthew, Matthew's writing with a different purpose, he, to help us understand what this moment reveals about Jesus. He's writing to demonstrate the truth that Jesus is God, Jesus is the king who was predicted in prophecy. And so, so Matthew's comfortable at this moment using the very voice of God and there's no meaningful contradiction that erodes our trust in the truth of the Bible. So that's a very brief side road. Like I said, this passage is often used to kind of point that the Bible's full of contradictions, but it's really not the case. So if you want to know more, you've got questions, I'd love to talk more about it. You can buy me a cup of coffee, we'll talk about it. So again, there's two key doctrines that are, that are brought to the surface here in the baptism of Jesus. And the first one is the Trinity. Again, in this passage, we see clearly the members of the Trinity. We learn a bit about their unique roles. Look again at the, the passage, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in this passage, we see Jesus the Son, we see the Holy Spirit as something distinct from Jesus, in this case appearing in a, in a physical form like a dove, visible at this moment, even though he's not normally visible. And of course, we hear the voice of God the Father again distinct from the other two members of the Trinity. And these distinctions are important because a lot of people want to conflate the Trinity, they want to confuse the members of the Trinity, but we want to get this right. We want to worship God rightly. And here we see they're distinct from each other. They're not different at different times, the way that some people think. That's not how the Trinity works. All three have always existed distinct from each other, just like we see right here. And one of the reasons for confusion, one of the criticisms of uh, the Trinity, is you can search all through the Bible and not find the word Trinity. I mean, it's not there. Some folks will say, oh, it's a, it's a made-up doctrine. But the simple fact is there's very strong biblical evidence for the existence of the Trinity. And this, pap this passage on the baptism of Jesus is certainly part of that, but I want you to consider these eight very straightforward statements that come from the Scripture. You should see these passages uh, in your sermon notes and, and hopefully on the screen as well. Perfect. And, and this list is not mine originally. It doesn't originate with me, but I think they're very clear verses that help us see the full doctrine of the Trinity in the Scripture. So we're going to go through these briefly. First, uh, there's one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 is this famous passage called the Shema. Uh, Shema is the Hebrew word for to hear or to listen, and faithful Jews even today recite this passage, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. Listen, Israel, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh is one. God is one. He has unity. Part of the word trinity is unity, a unity of three or a tri-unity. And, and, and here we see very clearly God is one. He's unified. And the second passage very briefly tells us that the Father is God. Hopefully that's not a surprise to you. You can see this in all kinds of places in the Bible. But in John 6, Jesus is talking to the crowd of, of the 5,000 he's just fed. 
He tells them, hey, don't focus on food that perishes, but instead focus on the things that come from God the Father. So it's a very direct statement that the Father is God. There's other statements to consider. The third one there says, Jesus the Son is also God. And the Gospel of John starts with these words, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is Jesus. Here's Jesus seen both as God and as someone separate from God. He's with God. So God is one, and yet already we see that God is distinct. He's more than one, that the Father is God and Jesus is God. But then this list of statements goes on, and we see the Holy Spirit is also God. In the book of Acts, uh, Peter accuses someone of lying to the Holy Spirit. In the very next sentence, he says, you haven't lied to people, but you've lied to God. So lying to the Holy Spirit is the same as lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. So already with these first four statements, we, we see half of this, this critical doctrine of the Trinity, just half of it. Uh, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all God, that's important. All three of these beings identified as God, but it's only half because it doesn't tell us yet that these three beings are, are separate from each other necessarily. I mean, if God is one and all three of these are God, then we still don't necessarily understand how they, they fit together. We need the rest of these statements. And again, looking at the baptism of Jesus, we can see some of this, but if we're just looking at these eight statements, we need to affirm that all three are God, and that's just the half of it. We also need to affirm that they're all separate from each other. So there's a lot of misguided denominations or groups out there that would say, oh yeah, Jesus is God, or they'd say, oh, the Holy Spirit is God. But they would say something like, well, yeah, he, he was the Father in the Old Testament, and then he became Jesus, and then he became the Holy Spirit. No, that's not right. That's heresy. does not line up with the Bible. So let's keep looking at these eight statements. God is one. We saw that first. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Next on the list, we see the Son is not the Father. They're distinct. Clearly, uh, we see this coming from Jesus' own mouth after he's resurrected. In John chapter 20, he encounters Mary, and Jesus tells her, don't cling to me, Jesus says, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Jesus himself says he's going to the Father. He's clearly a distinct person from the Father. The next statement, the next passage teaches us the Son is distinct from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, he's giving his disciples these final instructions before he's arrested and killed. He knows that he himself is going back to be with the Father, but he tells his disciples, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. So Jesus tells his disciples that he's leaving, but the Holy Spirit's going to come to be another counselor. And of course, that's exactly what happens at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so, so the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are distinct from each other. Another statement, number seven on your list or in your notes there, is, is simply that the Spirit is distinct from the Father. It's the very same passage we just looked at, John 14. Jesus is continuing to, to comfort his disciples, and he reinforces for them uh, what we just read. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and remind you of everything I have told you. So here we see again a, a great picture of the Trinity. Just like at Jesus' baptism, all three of the members of the Trinity are represented right in this verse. Jesus is going to the Father. The Father's sending the Holy Spirit to be with Jesus' followers. So there's distinction here, distinct 
persons, distinct roles for each member of the Trinity. That's important. So far then we see there's one God, and yet even as we affirm the truth of what seems like a simple statement, we see that the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. It's already confusing, and we got more to go. But we also see clearly the Father's distinct from the Son, He's distinct from the Holy Spirit, the three are not the same. It's a mystery for sure. But let's not miss the majesty of this deep truth. There's one final statement on this list that depending on your perspective will either clear things up or make things more complicated. The three members of the Trinity, they're all distinct from each other, and yet there's not three gods. The Scripture teaches over and over there's one God, not three. That's the final statement there. 1 Corinthians Paul is contrasting God, the one true God, to the, 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 the numerous Roman gods of the pantheon. Ancient Roman world had, had all kinds of gods. And Paul tells the church, yet for us, there's one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, we exist through Him. So even though these three are distinct, there's only one God. It's a mystery. We can put these eight statements together, and they give us a helpful understanding of the Trinity. Again, there's some things that are confusing, like how does this all work? But God has revealed himself to us. He's given us enough light for us to be able to follow him, even if it doesn't all make sense. And when it comes to this doctrine of the Trinity, there's a couple of common reactions. Like the first reaction that happens a lot, it's easy for us to learn the right kind of things to say. It's easy for us to learn enough about the Trinity so that we're not Jehovah's Witnesses or Unitarians or whatever, right? Like we can even memorize these eight statements, and we might feel like we really get the Trinity. That's one possible reaction. Another common reaction is, that, well, I don't understand it, and we just kind of put it out of our minds. But my desire is, is not that we just have some head knowledge of it or not that we dismiss it altogether, but my desire is that it would draw us to worship, to, to bask in the, the majesty, the, the tension of understanding or trying to understand this amazing God who's three in one. He's a mystery, but he's revealed himself enough for us to be able to follow him and to worship him. I'm reminded of an old hymn. It, it's probably the oldest hymn that exists, and it shows up in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Paul's talking about how to live as a follower of Jesus, and then he quotes this ancient hymn that was used in worship in the earliest days of the church. Philippians 2 tells us Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these truths should draw us to worship, bowing, confessing, even though we could spend our lifetime trying to understand and still not getting it. So we've talked through these eight key statements. They all affirm what we see in the baptism of Jesus. And I've included in your sermon notes an image that helps summarize the truth about the Trinity. You should see it on the screen as well there too. And along with this image and along with these eight statements, 
there's a couple of key terms that will be helpful for us to learn, terms that are helpful as we think about the Trinity. And, and one of these terms comes from an ancient creed, one of these ancient statements about the truth of the Trinity, the Nicene Creed. Uh, some of the language in it dates back as early as 150 A.D., so very early in church history. And the Nicene Creed affirms that all three members of the Trinity are consubstantial. That's in your notes there. What that means is that they're of the same substance, so they have the same nature. Just like in Philippians 2, Jesus being in very nature God, consubstantial, the same nature and same substance. So that's an important term. Uh, what it means is that whatever it is that makes God God, that divine nature is shared by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They all have the same nature, the same substance, consubstantial. That's an important term. So they're all God and God is one. I'm going to tell you the other key term in a minute, but for now, you can remember that idea, consubstantial. The members of the Trinity all share the same divine essence or divine substance. So this is an important learning for this moment in time, this moment in the Bible. At Jesus' baptism, we get this, this, this tear in the fabric, this, this moment when the curtain is pulled back, so to speak, and we get to see this portrait of the, the majesty of God, the Trinity. This great mystery, how there could be three distinct persons all sharing one nature, the three-in-one God. Let's not miss that. But at the same time, I think one of the reasons it's easy for us to miss is because Jesus is so unassuming. He's so simple. He's so human. He's, he's just like us. I mean, he just walked down to the Jordan River from Galilee, stood in line, waited his turn. He didn't get impatient with the people in line in front of him. He's just normal. But, of course, he's not. He's anything but normal. This amazing event that happens at his baptism demonstrates that. He's clearly God. He's loved by God. And so if your brains are not too full yet, there's one other very important doctrinal teaching that comes out of this passage, a second very important doctrine about the identity of Jesus. So we've already said Jesus is fully divine. He has no beginning. He was with God from the beginning. He was God from the beginning, sharing that divine essence with the Father and the Spirit. And yet at the same time, Jesus was born. He was a person. He walked and he talked and he bled and he cried. So how can Jesus be God and human? Well, spoiler alert, it's a mystery. But there are some things that we can say for sure, some things that need to be clear for us. This is another very important doctrine. And just like the doctrine of Trinity, the humanity and divinity of Jesus, this nature of Jesus, it's a topic that's been hotly debated. In fact, here's a fun fact. This is a true story. You can call this Christmas in July. At one of these early church councils, one of these meetings where they'd gathered to, to discuss this topic of Jesus' nature, St. Nicholas, the guy we base Santa Claus on, right? Nicholas got so upset with these heretics that were spewing false statements about Jesus, he walked across the room and he slapped a guy, like full-on Will Smith treatment right? True story. So you can insert your own uh, slappy holidays or uh, deck the halls joke right there, but all that to say, these things are important. They're important for us to get right. I mean, Santa Claus went to jail for this, right? And the Trinity is one of these important doctrines, but very closely connected to that is the second doctrine, the nature of Jesus. How can he be both God and man? How does that work? Well, there's a lot of different ways people have tried to put it together over the years. Some ideas like, well, Jesus had a human body and a divine mind. Well, that doesn't really add up with Scripture. That's an inadequate view. Another false view would say Jesus was really two people. He was a human Jesus 
and a divine Jesus. Well, again, there's nothing in the scripture that would support that kind of view. Can't be right. That'll get you slapped by Santa Claus right there. Another flawed way people sometimes think about Jesus would say he had one nature that was a, a combination of human nature and divine nature, kind of like if you mixed ink and water together. You'd end up with something that's not pure ink, it's not pure water, it's, it's something different. Well, all these ideas are lacking because they all give up something very important about Jesus. In order for, us to, to, in order for Jesus to fully represent us, he has to be fully human. If he's anything other than fully human, he can't really be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins on the cross. So again, getting this doctrine right is really important. Our whole salvation depends on it. Jesus has to be fully human. And yet, if Jesus is not fully God, then he couldn't be without sin, and he wouldn't be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. So he has to be fully God. He has to be perfect. So this early church council, they debated all these possibilities, and they realized there's only one solution that makes sense. Jesus must be both fully God and fully human. He's fully human because he has to be able to identify with us and represent us as a sacrifice. At the same time, he's fully God. He's, he's perfect in every way, without sin, so that he could die to pay the punishment for our sins. He's the perfect, spotless lamb. He's the mediator between God and man, which means he has to be both God and man. He's our example of how to walk in obedience to God. He has to be fully human in order to be our example, but he has to be sinless so that he can walk in righteousness and obedience. So like I said, it's, it's a mystery. It doesn't make any sense, but it simply can't be any other way. And I think we see the reality of this in this very passage. Jesus is just a normal person waiting in line, willing to follow God and be baptized, identifying himself with sinners, and at the same time, Jesus is identifying himself as the beloved son, pleasing to God the Father. So he's fully God, and he's fully man. And the term the theologians use to describe this nature of Jesus is hypostatic union. Uh, that's the second key term. It's in your notes there as well. Hypostatic union. That's the, the two natures of Jesus that exist together eternally. He's fully God. He's fully man. If hypostatic union is too complex, just say he's God-man. So I want to wrap this discussion of, of the nature of Jesus, very important doctrine, by just reminding us of the majesty of this. I want you to listen to this quote from one theologian. He says, at the end of this long discussion, it may be easy for us to lose sight of what's actually taught in Scripture. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection more amazing even than the creation of the universe, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man, join himself to human nature forever, so that infinite God became one person with finite man. That will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. All morning long, we've been talking about obeying, following God, even when it doesn't make any sense. We've talked about obeying God, following the light that we have. And I hope that you see that we actually have a lot of light. God has revealed himself in an amazing way this morning. If we're willing to stop and focus on the majesty, God's going to reward us with an amazing portrait of himself. We all have our own distractions. We all have our own preconceived notions about Jesus. Even John the Baptist had his own assumptions about the Messiah. 
He could never have imagined what Jesus would do, living a perfect life, dying such a horrific death on our behalf. With no sin of his own, he took on our sin in order to give us life. And then because of his obedience, he was restored to life, rising from the dead to be with God and to mediate on our behalf, the God people. I want to leave us with just one more idea, a brief quote. comes from Johnny Erickson Tata, and we've talked about obedience, following God. We've taken a good look at these key doctrines about the Trinity and the nature of Jesus. Getting these things right is so important because, in part, they tell us just who is this God that we're following. These doctrines give us a lot of clarity about Him, and it's just so easy to get lost in every day, to get lost in the details and to miss the, the majesty But Johnny Erickson Tata reminds us, following God is not a matter of doing the right things. Don't get lost in that. She says, it's a matter of adoring the right person. God has revealed himself to us. He wants us to follow him. Let's not miss who he is. Let's pray together. Father God, you are indeed majestic, and you are indeed mysterious, and yet uh, you have revealed yourself to us in a way that gives us confidence in who you are. Even if we don't understand it, you know, we know that you want us to follow you. And Jesus, you have given us an example of that. You have not only shown yourself as an example, but you've made yourself the perfect sacrifice that gives us your righteousness so that we can follow you. And Holy Spirit, we worship you as well because we know that you have humbled yourself to be able to live with us and in us to guide us into further obedience and righteousness. And so we just worship you this morning knowing that you are a good God, you are great, and we praise you in the name of the Father and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.